Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. This show is all about making positive connections with other human beings through bicycle stories. Doesn't matter how expert you are or how novice you are. It's like you just met a new friend at a barbecue and they're going to share a story with you and it's going to be somehow about bicycles. In this long-awaited episode, we learn that you can teach an old guy new tricks and we go to the land down under. We also talk about some of the head games you can play while you're cycling and much more. You have a lot of different podcasts you could listen to and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. You know that the mission of this show is to bring bicycle-loving people from all over the world together by sharing stories and our common humanity. Well, I finally got to talk to somebody actually on the other side of the world, almost exactly opposite from where I live. I recorded this interview. It was nighttime and summer for me, and for him it was morning and winter. And while I try and avoid assumptions and generalities and, you know, stereotypes, I was really hoping we'd talk about kangaroos a little bit. And it turns out that seeing kangaroos on bike rides is a common occurrence in Australia. And in fact, they try and run across your path, much like squirrels do where I live. So you're riding along your bike and you see a kangaroo and the kangaroo is looking back at you on the bike and sometimes they kind of run out into the path like a squirrel would, but it's a giant kangaroo. Absolutely, yeah, it's a giant squirrel, Australian style. It's pretty cool, and some of the kangaroos can can be uh, really quite big, especially when they stand up, so you definitely don't want to corner them or anything like that, but but for the most part, they, they're kind of used to people, and um, yeah, and they're all right, they're all right. It's different, but it's cool. G'day, I'm Shane from Bikes at the Basin, a little bike shop on the south coast of New South Wales. Uh, we're a couple of hours south of Sydney in a, in a beautiful little coastal country town. I'm fortunate enough to be able to uh, play with bikes. Uh, the weirdest, the weirdest, uh, Experience of a customer, yeah, definitely probably would have been the the time where I had a customer who assumed that uh, we would take crack as payment for the repair of his bike. One of his friends damaged his bike and he bought it in, and you know we we fixed it up. And yeah, he uh, he put it to me that if we were interested in taking some drugs in payment for uh, for the bike, um, one of his friends kindly pointed out to him that you know I was probably a, a pretty clean living guy being a bike shop and bike rider and uh, it's probably not the best way to make to make payment but uh we sorted it out in the end and he got his bike and and went on his way but yeah that that was definitely a a little bit of a bizarre situation to be in a little bit set back by that for sure 
There's always interesting things, man. Always working in retail in general. Probably a day doesn't go by when there's something a little bit out of the normal. So I guess I put a few few out there. I mean, my favourite story, obviously, is the one where I got to meet, you know, I wouldn't say a hero, but like someone that certainly inspired me. And that story is so just like, there's so many coincidental things that sort of happen there that um, it seems too bizarre to be true. It was a really bizarre series of events. Firstly, I was I was kind of running late for work and it was school holiday time and as I'm sort of leaving out the door and there's all that fuss, my daughter, who normally is an early riser, but this day she slept in, got out of bed to say goodbye and as I'm sort of, as I was running late and I was taking the car this particular day, my wife suggested that, you know, maybe she come hang out at the shop with dad for the day. So this was all pretty exciting and, you know, we, she, she got ready and we came into work and as it turned out, the day prior, uh, we had a couple of repair bikes brought in and I took the customer's details as you do, but I just took his name and phone number as, as Jason and I said, you know, come in tomorrow at you know midday and, and come and pick your bikes up. So my daughter comes in into the shop and we're, you know, I show her a few things and we're tinkering and just having a, a good daddy-daughter day and it was it was really cool to have her around. But um, knowing that Jason coming in pretty soon, I had to start getting a bit of a move on. So my daughter at the time was working on a, a school project. She was building a website. So I said, just go log in and, and work on your website while I just finish up these couple of bikes and then we'll get stuck back into it. So I'm out in the workshop and working on these bikes and uh, they were pretty messy. They were from the tip. We, we try and rescue as many of those bikes as we can. So I was tinkering away on these bikes and they were taking a little bit longer than, than I sort of anticipated. And as I was working on the bikes, Jason's come in on time to pick them up and I'm um, just like, oh, just hang on a sec, mate. You know, we're still sort of working on them and we, you know, we had a bit of a chat and I'm, I'm out the back tinkering and, and while I'm doing this, he notices my daughter. He, he asks a few things about school holidays and you know, what she was up to and she mentioned that she was working on her project, her uh, website and uh, he asked her what she would like to do when she grew up. So my daughter is, she's a pretty avid reader and her aspirations for when she grows up is she would love to be a, an author illustrator and so he she mentioned this to Jason and he said, oh, that's uh, interesting. Uh, have you heard of a character called The Phantom? I'm an author illustrator and I work on that comic. Well... Uh, I probably should have said earlier, but I am a huge, huge, huge Phantom fan. Um, I'm talking the Billy Zane Phantom, which is probably what most people are familiar with. It's not the best movie, but the comic is my thing. I love it, and I've been a big fan since I was a kid. So Lee Falk is the creator of, of The Phantom, and he's been around since the 40s. He uh, He also created Mandrake and a few other characters, but uh, but the Phantom's really, like, there's a few places around the world where the Phantom's really big, Australia being one of those countries. He's quite popular in some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, India, uh, Brazil. He's probably one of the most big comic book characters in Australia. There's a publisher called Fru who do a really great job of bringing out comics every couple of weeks here and it's probably one of the few comic books that you can get from the newsstand so yeah and the, basically the phantom is a it's a bit of a strange story but basically the phantom he's immortal and he basically inherits his duty to protect and fight injustices from his jungle hideout in bengala he, he gets around in a purple skin suit which is a little bit different. He's rough on roughnecks 
and he's just an all-round good guy, so that definitely appeals to me. I, I love it. I have a little area of my house sort of dedicated to the Phantom, and I'm pretty enthusiastic. So being the, the Phantom nerd that I am, I, I nearly fell over working on the bike. I was out the back, and, and I, I put down tools straight away, and I walked out, and I was like, I looked at him, and I'm like, are you Jason Paulos? I, I think he was probably a little surprised that I knew. Comic book guys are quite accustomed to working by themselves in their own studio and, and you don't generally put a face to the name. But so, yeah, I think he was a little surprised that I, that I knew who he was and that was it. The bikes took way longer than they, they should have as, you know, I sort of sat there picking his brain and, and having a good chat to him about all things Phantom. And as it, as it turns out, he's done a lot of other stuff and works on a lot of other comics. So I felt so privileged that I, that I got to, to have a chat to him. And since then, he's sort of become a bit of a, a regular and a mate, and he comes down and we catch up, and I, I get to get a little bit of insight into what's coming up and insider gossip and all that kind of stuff, so it's pretty cool. And, and the big bonus with that was, too, that uh, once I fixed up his bike, so I, I was able to trade some work, and um, I managed to, to score some published Phantom pages, and he actually drew up a special picture with the Phantom riding a bike, which I have displayed in the shop and uh, you can check out on my Instagram page. Yeah, I feel pretty uh, blessed and lucky and that was a really super, super chance encounter. There were so many factors, like it was the first time that my daughter had come to work and, and just the fact that he chatted to her and, and mentioned that he was an illustrator, everything sort of just lined up. It was really a chance encounter and a strange twist of fate, I guess. Yeah, that's that's the most exciting story for me from my perspective with working with what I do. Okay, so part of Australia that we live in, it's a couple of hours drive south of Sydney. It's actually there's two big bodies of water, so there's Jervis Bay which at different times was sort of destined to be a lot of different things. I think originally they planned to even make it like a capital city. They wanted to build, a new, of all things, a nuclear power plant here at one stage. So you have Jervis Bay and then you have a small parcel of land and then you have what's called the basin, which is another big body of water which is not open. It was open to the sea but just through a little inlet. So there's a few suburbs, Huskisson, Vincentia, Sanctuary Point and Basin View and all these sort of areas in that little bit of land between Jervis Bay and the Basin. It's coastal and the, like it's really a nice place in terms of weather. We get some absolutely beautiful days here. Because we're in between two big bodies of water, the temperature this far south down the east coast of Australia can, like inland, can get quite cool in winter and really hot in summer. But because we're in, in between two big bodies of water, the temperature seems to stay a lot more stable. So it's quite a nice place to live and you can generally ride pretty well all year round without having to rug up too much. Like our lowest low temperature in the middle of winter would only be, you know, a couple of degrees Celsius above zero. So it's not too cold. And in summer, the prevailing wind is from the northeast and it sort of comes up every or pretty much every afternoon. So you get a nice sea breeze of an afternoon. So it's nice. Jervis Bay itself is like quite a touristy driven area because it has some of the, I believe, some of the whitest sand in the world. 
the beaches are absolutely amazing and there's the water's really clear it's a great place to dive it's really you can sometimes go there you know have a picture perfect white sand blue water beach to yourself so it's pretty cool there's lots of riding to do it's a little bit landlocked so you know regards to road riding and that kind of stuff you do tend to have to ride a lot of the same roads but uh, west of where we live it is wilderness you can go for hundreds of kilometers and it's just mountains and bushland so it gives you a lot of variety for riding it's a pretty cool place to live for sure what kind of wildlife would you see while you're on a bike ride it's uh it's really not uncommon it's almost that cliche thing of australia but uh i see kangaroos every day kangaroos they can be quite hazardous because they they lurk in people's front yards and you'll be riding along and they'll jump out behind a fence or something like that and i've had i've actually had a few of my friends have actually had incidences where they've hit kangaroos and and one friend in particular um, spent a few days in hospital completely with no memory of what happened. But yeah, it's not uncommon to see kangaroos. I've seen snakes, that's pretty common. Especially, uh, I've seen like riding home on the bike path, not something that you see a lot, but I have seen it a few times where I'll be riding home and um, when we come into the cooler months, the snakes will come out onto the path because it's a little bit warmer. So at the end of the day, they'll sort of come out and, and warm themselves on the path and get that last little bit of heat before they um, settle in for the winter. When I go out riding out more west, you see things like there's lots of bird life and that kind of stuff. There's, um, you know, the occasional wombat, there's potteroos, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there's definitely lots of animals, but it seems bizarre that we could be in a sort of urban place and, and there's kangaroos, but um, where we live, there's, there's, there's tons of them and they, they eat your lawn. And, yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool thing to see. Have you ever seen a platypus while riding? No, not while not while riding. I have seen them in the wild. They're very uh, they're very reclusive, so to see one is pretty difficult. But I have seen them in the wild, but not no not not while riding. No. So what kind of writing is the most popular these days in Australia, where you are? Yeah, so Australia, Australia really, it does definitely follow the trends of what's happening basically everywhere around the world. Gravel's definitely getting big here as well. It's a little bit slow to take off. It's funny, it's something that I've always done and originally when I wanted a bike, to do that kind of stuff, I, I had to actually specially order a cyclocross bike because you couldn't even get a cyclocross bike in Australia. But um, definitely over the years, that's grown and uh, it's gravel riding and bike packing's definitely become much more, like I guess, accepted and, and bigger. Road racing here is it peaks and troughs, but generally it's fairly consistent. We do a lot of handicap racing in Australia. I guess they don't generally have big numbers, and that's the way that format of racing that's quite big in Australia and I guess that's fairly stable these days and, and definitely mountain biking is another area that I guess is really growing. I think a lot of regional areas in Australia have realised that by building mountain bike infrastructure and, and good trails that they can get a lot of people visiting and staying and it's really built an industry and resurrected some small towns. There's a place in Tasmania, Derby, which is a, a town that I think was 
sort of <coughs> didn't have a bright future, but has certainly um, come alive. And one of my favourite places to go, we try to visit a couple of times a year, is a, a little town further south from here called Tarthra, and those guys have built some fantastic trails. Australia doesn't have a huge population. I mean, unless you're in a capital city, it's really, like from a bike shop perspective, it's really hard to have a niche area. We, we sort of, as a shop, have a bit of a all the different aspects of cycling. It keeps it interesting and I love it. We've had the shop here for, for 15 years now. It's, we started out really small in a, in a little shop just as a child. The, the population's grown a lot in the past 15 years and when we first opened the shop I, I went and had an interview with one of the bike suppliers and you know he looked at some of the figures and what, one of the figures was how much of a population in the area that we had to sell to and we were well short of the survival of a bike shop in terms of population but you know I sort of told him where I was coming from and what I kind of hoped to achieve and said that we only had aspirations to be small and, and pay the bills and to his credit he gave us a crack he let us open an account and, and we've grown we've grown from there it's been a big journey and I've, I've certainly learned a lot along the way but I love it I've, I've felt really privileged that I've been able to, to sort of make a go of it I like to be playing with bikes all day but really for me it's the the interesting people that I get to meet like yourself along the way you know it's there's not many days where I don't enjoy coming to work I'm, I'm pretty lucky I had a funny laugh when I listened to your comedy special with all the bikes in the backyard, actually. I relate so much to that story. I have a shed full of bikes, and they're all projects that I don't know when I'll ever get around to fixing them, but they're all there, and I love working on bikes. I love... I try to salvage as, as many bikes as, as I can. Um, the strange thing with working in, in a bike shop, and I, I think it's maybe a little bit exclusive to this industry, is you get to meet and work on all kinds of different bikes you might get. Like you literally on the work stand might be working on a bike that really destined and ready for the tip. But it's someone who really is working on a tight budget and they really rely on their bike to get around. It's their, their form of transport. Ironically, the guys that use their bike the most and need the most um, tend to spend the, le the least amount of money on their bikes. But And then you finish working on that bike and you know you spend heaps of time just trying to get the basics to to work nice and the next bike is you know the, a $15,000 time trial bike and that's really what amazes me about what this industry it's got such a diverse mix of people even with riding and in being in the bunch and racing you know you might be chatting to a plumber and then you roll off and the next guy you chat to is a doctor or a policeman or it's a really mixed diverse thing and the beautiful thing about bikes is it kind of brings everyone together and it doesn't matter where you come from, the bike is a really, it's a great equaliser. And I really, I really love that aspect of what we do and the shop and the bike in general. It's such a journey, but at the end of the day, it's really cool that there's other people like me and you out there who just see it as one example of a thing that points out our common humanity. Absolutely, absolutely. And it genuinely is a beautiful thing with bikes, for sure, for sure. So if people wanted to find out more, where would they go? 
They can find us. We have a Instagram account, so it's just at bikes at the basin. Email is bikes at the basin at gmail.com. If anyone's ever in the in the area, by all means, swing through the shop and come and have a look. And I'm always always love to chat bikes and adventures, and so definitely swing through. And if you've got any questions about where to ride or uh, anything like that, um. You know, definitely hit us up and we'll try and get you in the right direction. Maybe even point out, you know, if you're bikepacking, a few little secret spots that are great. The shop's located in Sanctuary Point. It's not too hard to find and just a Google Maps will tell you how to find us. Yeah. Right. Anything else you want to say? I think you'd be great, by the way. So. Oh, thanks, man. No, that's that's it. I, I just got to say, man, I, lo- I really I love what you do. I think it's the best bike podcast, hands down. It's because of all the things that you said in the introduction. You know, like bikes are so much more than you know. I think you get the, the point across better than anyone I've ever heard, and it's a it's a really good outlook. And I, yeah, I, I love it, man. So thank thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. apologize for being late with this episode. It just took a long time to summon up the energy to get it all together with the summer being outside and the warm weather and it's my favorite time of year. And after Ragbri, I just was pretty exhausted. And so I took a lot of mental health days away from the podcast. Don't get me wrong, I love the stories and the people who share them but staring at a monitor during my favorite time of the entire year is really hard. Especially as we approach episode 42. I can't hear the number 42 without thinking of the late, great Douglas Adams. He wrote one of the most formative books of my teenage years called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Spoiler alert. They decide to make an experiment trying to determine the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Like, what is the answer? And after centuries, the computer says the answer is 42. It was that type of silliness that struck a chord with me as a young person. Here's what he said about being late. Rather than arriving five hours late and flustered, it would be better all around if you were to arrive five hours and a few extra minutes late, but triumphantly in command. Yeah, that's kind of what I did with this episode, I guess. It, it was going to be late already. And as I have apologized for that already, I'll apologize again. Sorry it's late. And I know a lot of people that I met in Iowa are probably still waiting to hear their story. I haven't even started with them. This episode contains a couple of stories months before Iowa. And I probably have enough backlog to take me through the rest of the year, if not into next year. So as episode 42 had me thinking about Douglas Adams, and Douglas Adams makes me think a lot about everything, I remember listening to the BBC radio play of his books, where one of his characters says, time is an illusion, lunchtime doubly so. 
and I remember just how generous Douglas Adams was with his own time. I was lucky enough to meet him at the University of Connecticut a long time ago. Thousands of people brought him towels to sign because a towel is the most useful thing you can carry on any trip, whether it's bikepacking or traveling through space and time. He answered every question in his lecture, and he did it so kindly, even though he'd probably been asked those same questions thousands of times. And not only that, he went downstairs in the lobby with us afterwards and hung out until everybody decided they had asked everything they wanted to know and it was time to go home. I never met a celebrity so generous with their time. So quintessential episode 42 is dedicated to Douglas Adams. Don't panic. Back to the show. This is Kion Wolf from Connecticut Public Radio and Kion Wolf Productions. Here to remind you about the ABC Quick Check, what you want to do before every single ride. A is for air. Make sure your air pressure is perfect. B is for brakes. Spin your wheels around. Make sure those brakes are nice and tight. C is for cranks, chain, and cogs. Grab the crank arms and try to wiggle from side to side. There should be no movement there. And you can spin the pedals and the cranks to see if the chain drives the rear wheel. And the chain should look like metal not like rust or black gunk or the inside of a smoker's lung. If the bike has gears, make sure it's shifting like butter. The quick part of the quick check is to make sure the quick release on the wheels or the seat post are nice and tight and closed. And the check part is to make sure your seat and handlebars are nice and tight and at the proper height. Do all this and you are golden, especially if you're riding the Pedal to the Metal 2019 pre-Eversource Hartford Marathon bike ride, 3 to 5 a.m. on October 12th. You'll be riding with 349 friends, all in onesies and lights and decorations, up and down down the CT fast track. That's Pedal to the Metal 2019 proceeds benefit BC Co, Hartford's only nonprofit educational bike store. Find out more by googling Hartford Marathon Pedal to the Metal and that's Pedal to the M E D A L. I'll see you bright and early. Bye. So I really appreciate when people take the time to follow the podcast or leave a positive comment. So here are the mid-roll thank yous. So for following, Bhnipadij, which is B-H-N-T-B-J. Thank you. M-C-C-8-D-G. Thank you for following. C-D-G-T-Q-P. Might stand for something. Zerkwag. Uh, X-R-V-Q-B-G. Thank you. Jonathan Barrett. One, two, three, four. Thank you, and thank you for making it easy to read. And for both following and leaving a really nice review, we got Broadwich Bicycles, Jeff Ross, Eli Bildner, Jay LaDuke for the nice review on Apple, and John2001 for another review. So thank you very much for everybody who did that. If you left some positive energy out for us and I didn't just thank you for it, please know that it is appreciated. And as soon as I see it, I'll be like, ah, I should have included him. And you could always email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com if you have a story any comments or you just want to say hey i left you a review and you never mentioned it so just tell me where you're leaving them the best place is probably on apple because that's the one that gets the most downloads but any place where you hit the like button or you subscribe or you share with a friend i really appreciate and it really helps the show so thank you very much 
And speaking of helping the show, Fred Thomas has been helping out by being a supporter of the show through the frame and wheel. We all have bicycles and parts laying around, some of which aren't getting used and some of them aren't getting used as much as they should be. Sometimes it's just a question of moving that piece on and getting another piece that's going to be used more by you. I mean, how many times have we bought a part for a bike and then upgraded the bike or sold the bike and moved on and still have the parts for it? Fred Thomas is there with the frame and wheel to make that easy to turn that into cash. He does all the hard work for you, such as the listing and the research and the photography. And he has a bunch of options for how you can get money, some of which include him making you an offer, selling it for you, or applying the balance to a new product, like a brand new bike. So if you've got some quality parts, a bicycle, or some accessories, Fred can help give you more time, space, and cash. If you're doing a charity ride like the Dempsey Challenge, Fred can also help by helping you with your fundraising. Learn how theframeandwheel.com can help you with your fundraising goals by checking out their website. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook, theframeandwheel.com, and on eBay. And even if you're not looking to sell, maybe you want to buy something and Fred's got you covered that way as well. The next time you're on Facebook, go browse through the Frame and Wheel Bike Gear Exchange. He's got some cool stuff in there now, including a Rivendell, a felt fat bike, and a like new set of my favorite Schwab tires. New items get posted all the time, and the photographs he takes are pretty amazing. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, check out the frame and wheel. Now back to the show. Okay, I'm going to start this segment with a confession. I still can't ride a unicycle, even though I'm in my 40s, almost 50, and still trying. I also suck at wheelies. I can kind of pop one, but I can't hold it for very long, and I'm still going to be working on that. And it doesn't matter how comfortable you are with being an outsider, it's always good to know that somewhere in the world you're not alone. There's a certain reassurance in that. So maybe somewhere else there's an old guy like myself trying to learn how to do a proper manual on the bike or learning how to do a fakie. I mean, it's totally beyond me. But I still try it whenever I go by the skate park. So when I saw the old guy's guide to re-entering BMX, I was intrigued. And in a world where there's plenty of bad choices to make in life, getting back on a bike to raise your spirits is not one of them. So let's listen to the writer in black as he talks about his post, The Old Guy's Guide to Re-Entering BMX. So while BMX has always been kind of this way of kind of rebelling against the more the popular sports, the you know, like football and baseball and stuff that you find in high school, usually the rebel kids would be like, I'm going to get on my BMX bike and I'm going to show them what's up, you know? I was that kid. That's where the skateboarding kind of thing, the punk rock culture kind of comes in. My name is Dion, AKA Rider in Black from Santa Cruz, California, and I'm a freestyle BMX rider. Yeah, so in 1987, I was in the seventh grade, and um, I hear this kind of ruckus going on outside of my junior high school. Uh, this is Mission Hill Junior High in Santa Cruz. I see all these kids kind of running out to the front, and I'm like, what's going on out there? And I hustle to the front, as all the other kids are, and I see this, this kid uh, kind of standing higher than 
the rest of the kids and he's hopping up and down on what is at that time I was like what the heck is he doing he was on a BMX bike and I knew that there was something called freestyle BMX at the time because I was kind of into skateboarding and kind of the more alternative sports but I never seen anybody do it in person I always saw it in like like Mountain Dew commercials and things like that and the moment I saw that I was like I want that I want to do that because I just saw all the kids getting so stoked on what he was doing and I'm like I want to be that stoked and I want to be the one up there making kids stoked. So the moment I got home I told my mom that hey I want a freestyle BMX bike. Uh, some weeks later my brother's friend said, hey, I'm, I'm selling my bike. And this bike was called a GHP Trix freestyle bike. And uh, I think we bought it for like 160 bucks. And from then started my journey into freestyle BMX. Uh, after a few years, I got real good and started doing little local shows and things like that. But around the age of 17, I got my first girlfriend, my first serious girlfriend. And that's what ended my whole BMX journey. <laughs> I got really into, into her and we started uh, doing more things like I just became more interested in going out to lunch and going out to dinner and taking her out. And I also got a car, which you would think that a car would lend itself to me going out to more BMX events, but it actually just lends itself to me trying to fix up my car and taking her out on more dates. And eventually the BMX bike just hung and I don't know whatever happened to my freestyle BMX bike. I think I gave it away or something like that. That was the end of my BMX. So it was a girl and a car that actually ended my BMX career from my teenage years. Fast forward to probably my mid-twenties. Um, this was, what was this, maybe the mid-nineties, I think. Early, yeah, early to mid-nineties. From when I quit BMX up until around the age of, and that was probably around the age of 16, 17, um, until age 18, I was not interested in anything. I, I kind of just hung out. I mean, we're talking no internet, no real social contact contacts and um, not really knowing anybody. So I just kind of sat around. It was pretty lazy. I was going to the junior college um, so I can transfer to a university and I was taking night classes and not really doing much. Uh, as a result of that, I started to kind of gain a lot of weight. <laughs> I was eating a lot of, a lot of junk and um, I joined a gym. So from about 18 years old into my mid to later 20s, I was a gym rat. During that time, I was really, in, of course, into like kind of the testosterone driven stuff. You know, I'm lifting weights and I was actually competing in bodybuilding. But I felt even doing all that kind of stuff, I felt like something was missing in my life. So I said, oh, I, I, I know I got to I got to get myself a motorcycle. 
So I kind of went back to two wheels via a motorcycle and I got myself a really, really fast sport bike. And from my mid to late 20s, all the way into my 30s, I was heavily into motorcycle riding. I mean, I'm talking about all kinds of different motorcycles. And eventually that led myself to getting a dirt bike, which then led myself to getting into mountain biking. So it was this weird evolution of being a teenager, getting really into two wheels, freestyle BMX riding, then hitting my mid-20s, my early to mid-20s, kind of getting into the machismo thing, getting into motorcycles, that evolved into getting into dirt bikes, which eventually put me back on a bicycle. And my first introduction to that was mountain biking. From mountain biking, I got heavily into like cross country stuff. And now we're talking into kind of my early 30s. I got into cross country and when I figured out I kind of like cross country mountain biking, I then started to get into road biking. <laughs> so <laughs> it was this kind of weird full circle from being loving bicycles, then kind of finding my way. But what's interesting about it is I was kind of miserable during that entire time. I was not having as much fun as I wanted to on a bicycle, but what was giving me joy when I did ride those bikes was every once in a while, I would throw in a trick. I would do a trick on my mountain bike. The trick I really liked was this thing called a rock walk. So what I would do is I would, is you, you kind of hit the front brake, pivot on the front wheel 180, hit the back brake, and then pivot back so you're facing the same direction that you're going. And I found myself doing more and more rock walks on uh, on my mountain bikes and my even on my road bikes with drop bars. So. As I'm doing these tricks on my mountain bikes and road bikes, I, I'm kind of going through going through some mountain bike magazines and I found that there's something called a dirt jump bike. I'm like, oh, that's like kind of like mountain biking, but you can do you can do tricks on a dirt jump bike. And of course, like anybody else, I went online and went to YouTube and found all these guys doing tricks on dirt jump bikes. I understand that I'm still doing cross country and, and at this point I'm actually trying my hand at racing cross country and even trying to race some cyclocross, but I'm not really built for that kind of stuff. I'm like five foot nine, 200 pounds, and I was just having a rough time trying to go fast and trying to do the athletic part of, of cycling. But I did get this, this dirt jump bike, and I found myself doing tricks on the dirt jump bike. I found myself like knowing how to bunny hop, um, which was came real natural to me because when I was a teenager, I could I was able to bunny hop onto like picnic tables and on top of cars and kind of ride over them the way you would see in Crew Jones Rad. I could really I could bunny hop really high and even some some people would be like, "Wow, dude, you're getting like three foot you know standstill bunny hops." And I'm like, "Oh, I, I didn't know I could do this." So uh, like the body never forgot. And from a dirt jump bike, I got a BMX Cruiser. 
which was a 26 inch BMX bike. For some reason, inside of me, I thought this idea that it was difficult for me because I'm a grown man. At this point, I'm in my mid thirties and I'm fighting this urge to get back into BMX riding. It, it, for some reason, I thought that, hey, you're a grown man, you shouldn't be riding little kids' bikes. But then I stumbled upon another website, which was called Global Flat. And Global Flat is a Flatland BMX forum. Flatland BMX is basically doing tricks on the ground, uh, no ramps, no obstacles, nothing like that. You're just doing ground tricks. And I said, I really like Flatland BMX. It's something I was good at when I was a kid. In fact, that's what inspired me to get into BMX to begin with back in 1987. So I get online and uh, I see that you can buy a Flatland BMX bike for like three or 400 bucks. I'm like, okay gonna try my hand at 20 inch bikes again <laughs> and and I was to be honest with you I was a little embarrassed uh I was I was thinking gosh why should I, I I'm getting back into kids bikes but I shouldn't be doing this I'm a grown man I should be into into mountain bikes and I should be into road cycling and all these other kind of stuff but I just kept on getting pulled back to BMX regardless of what bike I threw a leg over I was always going to inevitably do a trick on it every time it didn't matter what bike it was a single speed a road bike i was always going to try to do something on it trick wise so the flatland bike comes comes to my house and i put it together and next thing you know i'm out there in the parking lot same thing when i was 16 years old by this point i was probably 32 and i'm doing tricks in the parking lot like i did when i was a kid it was more about the the absurdity of, of a grown man being on a BMX bike. I know that sounds silly nowadays because a lot of grown men, especially with collectors and things like that, it was more about the absurdity of it all. Uh, you should no longer be trying to do tricks on a bike when you hit a certain age. I know that sounds silly, but you know, deep inside, that's, that's what I believed. I go, I, I shouldn't be doing tricks on a bike. I'm too old for that. Uh, you know, there's danger. It's not, it's not only silly, but it's just dangerous. So that was a big one for me. I didn't want to be silly. So when I started buying BMX bikes, and I say that plural, because it was almost like I was put into a time capsule. You know, like back in the day, we, you know, people get these time capsules and they put in these things of the current time, then they bury them. And then with the hopes of some modern human to open this time capsule back up and, oh, look, that was, that's how things were back in 1982. That's how I felt like as a person. When I got back into BMX, I had these preconceived ideas of what a BMX was like. I mean, you know, I'm coming from an era, the late 80s, early 90s, where BMX bikes looked a certain way, but they're also built a certain way. BMX bikes from that time were not very strong. I mean, we constantly snap brake cables. We would always break our frames. In fact, so many times I had to get my frame re-welded by Paul Sadoff by uh, Rock Lobster. Uh, we, he had His house was kind of across the street from McDonald's, so we would drop off our frames with Paul. He would go and weld them real quick while we had, had McDonald's across the street when we were teenagers, and that's kind of a fun memory. But they were just weak. There was not like... Uh, the BMX bikes were not 
very specific, meaning that, I mean, I know that they tried to make BMX bikes specific, but they were not very specific as, as specific as they are now. So when you bought a BMX bike back in those days, it was kind of an, you do everything on that BMX freestyle bike. Like you buy one freestyle bike and you can ride ramps with it and you can flatland ride with it. You can uh, ride street obstacles with it. You can ride dirt jumps with it. But then when I came, opened up the time capsule in 2008, I realized that, oh, they've made a bike for every style of riding and there's so many differences and how do I navigate all this? And the one one thing that confused me was micro gearing. You, you know, back in the day, we wore, we had a 44 front rocket with a 16 tooth free wheel. That no longer was a thing anymore. And I spent a lot of money and a lot of time trying to build a BMX bike that I would feel comfortable with. And I failed over and over and over again. And I ended up spending thousands of dollars trying to make the perfect BMX bike. And inspired by that, at one point I said, I know now I'm at a point where I spent all this money, I've done all this research, and I'm sure there's other guys out there that might be having the same issue. So why don't I write a guide and, uh, for those other older guys trying to get back into BMX? So most of the time when I tell people I ride a BMX bike, the next question or the first question they ask is, uh, oh, can you do a backflip? Every, for some reason, people associate nowadays BMX with a backflip, which means they associate it with the X Games. Actually, BMX is not the X Games, but BMX back in the day, it started off on Schwinn bicycles. The kids started racing them, of course, on that 20 inch wheel. And eventually they took it, got track sanctioned and kids started racing. There was a group of kids out there, say in the seventies that, um, kind of wanted to rebel against the strict structure of racing. You know, for a lot of kids, racing wasn't the way they wanted to go. The re a lot of kids turned to BMX because they didn't want to do the sports like football and baseball and this rigid kind of, uh, I hope I don't any, uh, offend anybody by saying this, but this kind of jock mentality. Um, but BMX racing ended up kind of becoming that. Uh, there was a group of outside kids who started taking their bikes and they would enter into races simply to ride the jumps. And next thing you know, they're riding the jumps and trying to do tricks off the jumps. And that was kind of the birth of freestyle. So freestyle basically is trick riding. I mean, people, uh, again, people will associate freestyle or excuse me, BMX with the X Games, but the X Games is actually freestyle BMX. It's, it's trick riding. But within freestyle, you have different types of, uh, of genres. So the first thing that you have would be what you see on the X Games is uh, ramp riding or what they call park riding. So this is more uh, the structures, the obstacles, the big ramps, a lot of jumping and a lot of the kind of the flipping and, and the real high powered, high risk maneuvers in the air. Uh, that's park or ramp riding. Then uh, you have street riding and street riding, they do, compete with street riding, but street riding kind of harkens back to when kids would just ride their bike along the street and jump curbs, and uh, which we did back in the day because we didn't, in Santa Cruz, 
during that time, we didn't have any any skate parks or anything like that. I mean, we had one or two, but most of the time, we would end up riding obstacles just what we were presented in the street, like benches, tabletops, uh, like picnic tables, um, rails, handrails. Handrails became a thing. Uh, anything we can find out in the street that we can session, that would be our street riding. So that's what street riding is. Actually, literally pulling your bike out the front door and pedaling through the neighborhood and doing tricks on any obstacle you can find out on the street. That's where BMX allied with skateboards. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in fact, street street riding, modern day street riding with the with the grinds and the and the things down the handrails, a lot of them were a lot of those tricks were borrowed uh, from skateboarding. Then you have flatland riding. Now, flatland riding is and and mind you, every single one of these bikes is built slightly differently. The geometry of each one of those bi these bikes, that, these different genres of BMX, the frames, the geometry of these frames are different. They handle differently. Like for example, a park bike uh, would, or even a dirt jump bike would be a little bit longer. Flatland bikes are very short. And flatland is just ground tricks. And so whenever you see a BMX rider kind of spinning around in tight circles on a uh, flat surface, usually out in the parking lot, that would be flatland riding. And it's, it's very dedicated to no obstacles, just the flat ground and your bike. And uh, people people will say, oh, it's, it's kind of ballet with your bike. And uh, it almost looks like the, the rider is kind of dancing with their bike as if their bike was a, was a dance partner. It's, it's quite beautiful. Flatland's a beautiful, beautiful genre of BMX, but it's also very, very difficult. So a lot of people don't get into flatland because it's just so hard. Then from there, you have vert riding, and vert riding are the big half-pipe riders. These guys are the, the big air uh, the big air stuff, and uh, it's all done on a, on a half-pipe. This is what Matt Hoffman is known for. There aren't many people doing vert riding anymore, just because not a lot of people have access to vert ramps. And then finally, you have dirt, dirt, uh, which is dirt jumps. And these are the more popular riders like Ryan Nyquist, some of the names out there is not unlike dirt jump on mountain bikes, but these are the big dirt jumps and, and there's a lot of competition for those too. So those are the videos where you see the kids go out into the woods with a bunch of shovels. Yes. And start piling up stuff and then all of a sudden in the middle of the backyard or the middle of the woodlot is this weird, crazy giant jump and then they just spend the next several weeks going over this jump over and over and over Yes. Again. Yeah, and, and it's not it's not just one jump. Oftentimes, the, it's many jumps. And so it ends up being this real rhythmic, beautiful kind of rhythm. And it's, it, they're, they're so relaxed. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful aspect of BMX. In BMX, you have all these different genres. And then you have these this group of, and being nice, and you have this group of weirdos. And these are actually what we call freestyle riders. And these are the guys, and I'm I, like I said, I'm one of them. Freestyle riders abandon all the genres. I don't want to say abandon, but we kind of we kind of take a little bit from each genre. So a freestyle rider would take something like, okay, I know how to do a flatline trick. I know how to do a street trick. I'm going to mix them together into something weird, and, and that's kind of what free. Or you'll get you'll you'll get somebody who can possibly ride park really well, but also they know how to do a flatline trick. So. They'll be out there in the skate park 
And while most guys are just kind of hucking their bikes and getting getting big airs and things like that, a freestyle rider, what they'll do is they'll go out in the park and they'll might catch some air and they'll land and then they'll do maybe a flatland trick linked out of it. What it is is getting a little bit from each genre, a little bit of dirt, a little bit of park, a little bit of flatland, a little bit of street, and kind of mixing it into a different style, and that's freestyle. I don't know why we call it freestyle, but people just started calling it freestyle. It's all freestyle, but hey, I'll, I'll go along with the flow. For the outsider looking in into BMX, what people don't realize is that they see one BMX bike they, that, you know, regardless of it's a dirt rider, or a park rider, or, or a flatline rider, they see a bike that has a specific look, 20-inch wheels with tall handlebars and a crossbar going across the handlebar. But what most people don't realize is that there's actually quite a bit of separation between the different genres of BMX. Rarely will you see a flatland rider at a dirt park, or, <laughs> nor would you see a street rider at a flatland jam. It, there, there's quite a bit of separation. We all kind of respect the different genres, but uh, if, unless, if you don't ride that genre, you more than likely wouldn't be uh, hanging out with the other genre. It's a little bit like West Side Story. Absolutely, absolutely. We're all part of this, this, the same umbrella of BMX, but it's just different, different styles of riding. I have friends that ride dirt jumps, and they're great at dirt jumping, but they're my friends, but I just don't ride with them. <laughs> I just don't. So to be a freestyler is actually kind of a new thing, is to be able to borrow and take from all these things. Yeah, and you know what's funny is that freestyle riding, it was actually the way it was back in the 80s and, the, and, and into the 90s. It's so funny to know that what was old has become new and the new is obscure. Uh, like for example, I'll, I'll go to a, I'll go to a BMX jam, which is typically a street, street riding type thing where you have, oh, I don't know, 100 to 200 people and everybody's riding obstacles out in the street. It's actually kind of mayhem, but, um, someone like me will go do a street trick, but I'll link that to a flatland trick. And these street riders will kind of be like, what the heck is this guy doing? <laughs> so it's a, it's, but that's the way it was back in the early days of, of BMX freestyle. Back when, when we actually branched off, everybody rode a little bit of everything. And then over the years, it kind of, kind of separated. And then there are a few of us who said, no, we want to go back to the old things. So, you know, whatever, what was old became new again. And now it's very obscure to most people. So here I am in my mid-early 30s, kind of doing some BMX stuff. Spent thousands and thousands of dollars in parts and frames and all kinds of stuff, uh, riding gear, everything that you can possibly think of related to BMX. I'm sure the BMX companies were very happy with my with my investments. But uh, I started just, I was just buying stuff constantly, trying to figure out how can I build a bike that I'm comfortable on? Um, like I said earlier, I start off on a flatland bike, but flatland bikes are very short. They have a very short wheelbase. And if I tried to bunny hop that, I was like kind of loop out and flip up and it just felt very uncomfortable. So then I said, okay, I need a longer frame. So I'd buy a, I'd buy a park frame, which is a longer frame. But then I would think, oh gosh, this thing is so long. And then I realized that 
there's somewhere in between that I can probably find something. And then I said, oh, these things all had different geometry. Not unlike what you would, you'd see on mountain bikes and even road bikes. Like there are some, depending on what kind of mountain biking you do, you, if you've got a downhill bike, of course it's going to be different than a cross country bike. Well, the same thing is in BMX. And when I made that realization, I thought, oh, there's, there's guys possibly going back into BMX that might be as confused as I've been confused. And I sure would like to stop them and save them from spending thousands and thousands of dollars in parts and just lay it all out there. And that's how the old guy's guide to getting back into BMX was started. The old guy's guide to getting back into BMX is exactly that. It's, it's just a guide of how to navigate what type of frame to get, how to figure out crank arm length, just how to figure out the ins and outs and how to navigate what the modern parts are like. The, the issue with old guys getting back into BMX is that they want to go back to their old bikes. They want to buy those bikes from the 80s and those things have become collector's items at this point and, and people are really raising the price on them. So if you wanted to get a 1986 Haro Freestyler, well, good luck. You're going to have, a, you're going to have trouble finding one that's in good condition. Um, number one. Number two, they're going to be very, very expensive because they're actually collector's items. So instead of going out and buying that old bike, potentially something that's weaker than what you can buy nowadays, get a modern bike and design for the type of riding that you want to do. And that's what the old guy's guide is, is talking about parts, geometry, just the different aspects of what goes into building a BMX bike now. The other thing that I have there is kind of my own little, uh, uh, a little salt and pepper on it, which is the psychology of getting back into BMX. I mentioned earlier that when I got back into BMX, I was kind of embarrassed. You know, I was, you know, at this point, kind of an older man. At that point, I felt like I was older. Now I realize that there's a bunch of guys in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and even 60s riding BMX. But back in those days, I was like, ah, I'm kind of an outlier. It's still, still weird doing this. The psychology of getting back into it and helping guys navigate like, oh, no, you don't have to be embarrassed. I liken it to, you know, I live in Santa Cruz, and Santa Cruz, California, is known for surfing. Well, you go out in, on the waves now, and you see guys in their 50s, 60s, and possibly 70s. What's the difference? Why can't a man in his 50s, 60s, and possibly 70s get on a 20-inch bike and start doing tricks? I don't see anything wrong with that. How about physically? Do you notice any changes? Yeah, yeah. So um, I do talk about that in the old guy's guide to getting back into BMX. Uh, BMX riding, depending on the type of riding that you do, can be has pretty significant consequences physically. So, of course, uh, do the old disclaimer, <laughs> check with your doctor before getting into this, into this sport. <laughs> but yeah, part of the reason why I actually branched off into this freestyle realm of riding, of kind of doing a mixing of things, because at this age, I realized that I'm probably not going to be doing any handrails anytime soon, if ever again. I mean, that's something I did when I was a younger, younger kid. Uh, you know, you, back in 
when I was 16 years old, he told me to go down a handrail. More than likely, I was going to do it. But nowadays, not so much. So that's, again, part of the, the psychology of if you did that when you were a teenager, leave that for the history books. Get back onto a BMX bike and just go out there and start start jumping curves. For me, it all kind of goes back to happiness and and um, and finding something and, and that that guys were so in love with back when they were teenagers and somehow drifted away from it and then finding happiness again in this very very basic rudimentary style of bike, which is a single speed on 20 inch wheels. So, if people want to find out more about this or your current projects, where would they go? Yeah, so they can find me. Uh, I'm mostly on Instagram under the screen name of at Rider in Black. That's R-I-D-E-R-I-N-B-L-A-C-K. Did I spell that right? Yeah, <laughs> Rider in Black. You can also find me at riderinblack.com. That's where you're going to find the old guy's guide getting back into BMX. Yeah, I'm actually working, currently working on a book. I hope to turn it into an audiobook. That's the ultimate goal. Um, but right now the working title is just the BMX book. That's the Microsoft Word document that I have. I got so inspired. I mean, on monthly or bi-monthly basis, I get emails from, from people, uh, mostly men my age, saying, Dion, I can't believe it that, you know, I, I, I read your blog and I got a BMX bike and thank goodness because I was about to go buy an older one, but I bought this bike and I am so happy. I'm riding with my kids. I've lost 30 pounds. Some even say that they have they have better relationships with their wives. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, this is incredible. I can't believe this, that, that this simple guide of just teaching guys how to buy a bike and sharing with them how to get back into BMX has had all this extra, like um, these extra benefits for them. I mean, I didn't know I was going to get into some kind of weird marriage counseling through my blog post, but I wanted to branch off on that. I, I wanted to branch off on that because for me, BMX actually makes me feel whole. I mean, my wife knows that when I don't go ride a session, I start to get a little disgruntled. So I want to share more of that kind of psychology and life experience and I want to share those stories with people, and that's what the book is more about. Not so much about the technical aspect of BMX, but more about the life aspect and the human experience relating to a BMX bike. All right. Hey, thank you very much for being on. Tom, thank you so much. So I'm a big fan of focusing. I think it's great. I think you really need to throw yourself into some things and really focus on them. Part of why this episode took such a long time to come out is because it requires my full focus. So yet, while I'm on the bicycle, I do appreciate distractions sometimes because believe it or not, as much as I love cycling, as much as I love bicycles, 
I sometimes do get a little bored on the bike. I get to a point where I'm on my ride and I'm like, okay, I'm done now. And sometimes the ride's not done when you're emotionally done with the ride. So you push through it and get tough and all that stuff. But sometimes you welcome distractions, like a particular thread of thought that you can yank onto and, and kind of a story to fill your mind and fill those miles. And, and sometimes you just gotta play a game. So I invented a game. So I'm driving around trying to think of a game and I notice that there's a lot of basketball hoops actually on the street. So these are the ones with the big plastic base on the bottom with the adjustable height hoops. And some of them are set, you know, at the regulation NBA height of like 25 feet high and others are like really low so that you could actually touch them if you're cruising by on a bicycle. From this benign observation, a sport was born. It's a game straight out of the suburbs. Yeah, the suburbs don't always get a lot of love, but it's a game straight out of and could only be born in the suburbs. It's, 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 Let me teach you how to play by telling you the rules. Rule number one of Hoop Bike, don't sue me. Yeah, play it on your own. Don't, don't associate it with me. Don't do it because I told you to. Don't get hurt and then sue my family. Don't sue me. So rule number one, don't sue me. All right, into the fun stuff. So rule number two, only hoops that are on the street count. So if somebody puts a hoop on the street, it's kind of okay. It's considered that it's okay, fair game for you to play hoop bike. But if it's in a driveway, you're trespassing and you could get in trouble. Rule number three is scoring. It's really easy. If you can touch the net of any hoop, it is one point. And if you can touch the rim of any hoop, it is three points. And basically you try and get as many points as you can on a ride. And rule number four is very similar to rule number one, don't sue me. If the basketball hoop falls down on you or crashes onto a car or you crash or you hurt your hand because you slapped the hoop too hard or whatever. Don't, this is on you. So I'm just telling you about this thing I do and if you wanna do it, it's all on you. But then if you do, have fun. Okay, so my PR, I just shattered it. For a ride that was a little bit over an hour, I got 28 points which is amazing for me. So I, I was going, I thought like 15, 17 points was really good. And then I killed it with 28 points. So if you're rolling around and you need a little bit of fun distraction, consider hoop bike. Other subtle rules like lesser rules are that once you get any type of point for a particular hoop, that's done for the day. So if you got one point, you can't go back and try and get three points from the same hoop. If you get zero points for a hoop, you can, you can double back and try it. But then it's on you if somebody comes out of their house and starts wondering why you're circling their driveway or you're circling their kid's hoop or something like what that. What the heck are you doing? Another subtle rule is you probably don't want to do this where there's lots of people playing basketball. You don't want to be like, ding, 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 let me through, and then slam their hoop and then disrupt their game. So that's probably just etiquette, probably more than, more than anything else. And also one thing I've noticed is that some neighborhoods are a lot more uptight than other ones. 
it's, 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 so be careful with that in your choices, remembering rules number one and four, especially there. If you're in a super uptight neighborhood, maybe that's not the best place to play hoop bike. But then again, maybe you could build a bridge. Let's see rules one and four. And while we're at it, if you're a fan of the show and you use Strava, please check out and join our Strava club. It's just a collection of fans and guests on the show, and it's everything from balloon tire bikes to road bikes to mountain bikes to everything. So people from around the world have joined and we'd love you to join too. There's no commitment, it doesn't cost anything. It's just an extra place to see what people who listen to the show are doing and where they're riding and stuff like that. So if you're looking for it on Strava, it's the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast community underneath the club section. And if you happen to play hoop bike, good luck beating my high score of 28. But if you do, feel free to post it. Did I just throw down a challenge? Is that what I did? It, felt, it kind of felt like I threw down a challenge. On with the show. Well, that's it for another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. As always, I'd like to thank Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. You can check them out at mobjackmusic.com or you can search up Keller Glass. Thanks to the other royalty-free artists for our other background music. Thanks to Shane from Bikes at the Basin. Thanks to the rider in black from out in California. And thanks to Kion Wolf and Pedal to the Metal. And especially thank you, the people listening in all 50 states and over 50 countries all over the world. I really appreciate it. If you have a story you'd like to share or comment on the show, you can contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. You can DM me on any of the social media as well. The Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyright, trademark, and all other rights are asserted and reserved. And yeah, I really did enjoy Ragbri, which was the ride across Iowa. It was about 500-ish miles. I met lots of people and got lots of great stories from the bike. So for all those people who shared their stories and all those people waiting patiently in the queue, I appreciate that patience. I'll keep trying to put a little love in each episode. Thanks for coming along for the ride. Till next time, keep it wheeled.